0: Welcome back to the AZ of Archaeology. Today we're on B, and we're going to be talking about the Viking site of Burka. I'm Nikki.
1: I'm Jenny, and Alice has disappeared this week, but we have a special guest, Alex Payne from the University of Edinburgh, who's going to be talking to us this week.
2: Yes, I am Alex, and I study Scandinavian languages and history. So this is really my jam right here.
0: <laughs> Very good. Would you be able to give us a quick rundown of just Scandinavia, the Viking times, Berka, because we don't really know anything about it?
2: Um, yeah, so Berka itself is in the middle of Sweden in the region of Upland. It's located in a lake called Mellaren and it was founded in the Vendeltid, which is the Vendel period. Uh, you might know the Vendel period from sites like Sutton Hoo in uh, East Anglia, which is a helmet which you will know it came from and was inspired by the art of Upland in the Vendal period. It continued on into the Viking Age and was later supplanted by Sigtuna, which was another trading port further out towards the coastline. Archaeologists suspect that Birka was superseded by Sigtuna because the Melaren used to be connected to the coast, but then the water levels fell and ships could no longer reach Birka itself. Um, it also has an interesting title in Sweden as Sveriges Första Stad, which means Sweden's first city. Uh, speculation about this isn't exactly right or wrong. We don't really know whether it was considered a city, and even at the time of its founding and use, there's no actual mentions of it in Viking records or anything from the, period, the time period. It's also a difficult time period because it's very mythologized. If you've ever read Úlflinga saga, uh, I mean, I'm mostly a specialist in runes, so we'll be—I'll be talking about the runic aspects of Upland, and these two, the actual archaeologists, will get us into what we found at Berge.
0: So, should we get onto the runic stuff first, and then we'll talk a bit more about the archaeology? Yeah, let's do that. Let's do some runes. runes.
2: Okay so um do you want me to give an overview of runes or shall i specifically talk about the burka runes first
1: uh do you want to give a quick explanation of like what they are what they're used for how we can translate and stuff like that and then
2: okay yeah no i can i can get into that so runes are originally used in the fourth century a.d and they were originally used by proto-Germanic peoples and they used the elder Futhark which is the oldest version of the runic alphabet that we know of. These aren't particularly important what we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about Viking runes but just know that they were used a really long time period ago by the ancestors of all people who speak Germanic languages. So around the 8th century we start to see the younger Futhark which is the Viking runes. These consist of 16 individual letters instead of the 24 of the elder Futhark, because Germanic languages lost a lot of their letters and became a lot more simplified over time. But generally runes we used to communicate um, and they're found absolutely everywhere in the site of Berka. Upland region has the highest concentration of runes and rune stones anywhere in the world. And whilst they communicate to people they use as way markers and commemorate people who have died there's also all sorts of other interesting things you can use them for like magic rune magic was discussed a lot in the Eddas, which are books that describe viking religion they're basically our only sources on viking religion and to unlock the secrets of runes odin was hung from a tree and stabbed himself with a spear as a form of votive self-sacrifice to unlock the power of runes and give them to people, and to learn their magics, you can also write secret messages with them. So in Iceland, they have troll writing with runes. So each rune has a name. So one rune is called Ehwaz, and you know how the name has a Z at the end. So instead of writing it as an E, that would mean it's a Z, and it's called troll writing because supposedly trolls can't read it, which is just a fun little thing to know about.
1: That's kind of fun.
2: Yeah, and then there's also grievances. So a late runic example of grievances is in this old Norwegian pub that we sort of dig up, what more of a tavern, and it's basically just a wife telling her husband to come back from the pub and stop being such a drunk.
0: That's brilliant. You know,
2: yeah. Uh, But they continue into the 12th century, and uh, they're used for just ages to do all sorts of things. They're very they're very central to Viking religion. I mean, one, there's a self-sacrifice, but also in Halvamol, which is one of Odin's most important texts. He says that the memories stories seldom stand by the road, save when kinsman honours his kin, in reference to runes. So it was seen as the most respectful thing to do when honouring a dead relative who had gone off to leave runes behind and commemorate them in that way.
1: Oh, okay. Well, how we leave flowers then,
2: kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, but these would path, uh, these would act as way markers. They're often found on crossroads because they know people would find them. And the sheer amount of runes that we find in places like Verka, on small things like amulets and stuff like that, would suggest that many people were literate and could use runes to read and write. Or at least enough people could tell people how to use it.
1: Oh yeah, so it's not like an elitist thing, everyone kind of has
2: access to it. Yeah, um, another reason why we know that is, is because in Orkney, uh, you'll be familiar with the site of Maze Howe. Uh, we know that when the Vikings entered that place, it was just normal Viking warriors, with maybe a couple of more important people along there. But they wrote, um, they wrote all of these runes themselves and wrote underneath their own inscriptions of their names. And it's very unusual for a society to have warriors who are of regular farming stock to know how to read and write so this is so what i love about like, it go and do yeah. some
1: graffiti we'll exactly
2: them. there's a there's a really funny inscription in one of them which i think i can find in my notes here in may's how but it's basically just someone writing some graffiti saying "Egil". ah oh, here it is yeah "Egil fucked hilda <laughs> sorry <laughs> For the profanity, but that is literally what the runes say. Yeah,
0: that's brilliant. It's just nice to know that graffiti has been the same just throughout time. It is always the same,
1: and also that sense of humour has just maintained.
2: Oh yeah, we there's there's ones everywhere the Vikings went. So there's ones in the Hagia Sophia as well, which is I don't know if you know an old. Uh, cathedral, later mosque, built by Justinian in Constantinople, and it's just people writing their names to say that they were here and they had made a mark on this world, which is really quite sweet.
1: Yeah, yeah, all the stuff that I've like researched about the Vikings is very like comparable to just the society that we're living in today.
2: Oh yeah, oh yeah. Like they're
1: quite relatable people.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, I this this is what got me in Scandinavian studies. Really, is that, it's just it's just a bit weird but people are just sort of enjoying themselves as well and having a good time yeah um but shall i get into some examples from berka
1: yes please. yes please
2: um i just want some notes on my translation so i'm going to be saying the um things in modified modern icelandic for the pronunciation only saying this because people can get quite intense about this in scandinavian studies so um.
1: Compared to the pronunciation last episode, I
0: think, your sound. Yeah, we're going to be fine. Also, like, I'm assuming both me and Jenny are pronouncing Birka wrong. You're pronouncing it very different to how I'm saying it.
2: So, like, uh, um, I think Try we're... and say it as Birka. Bier- ka. Bier-
0: ka. Birka. 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 Okay. Yeah. Birka. Okay.
2: Yes. Um, yeah, and it's it, it gets its name from the island it's on, which is Birka, which means Birks Island. Um... But we have one important rune stone uh, called U4 uh, on Birke, which says "dotir bad astir itla," which is "daughter had this made to preserve the memory of Utah. So, as you can see, it's it, it's just another stone to commemorate a family member who probably died. This was a trade port, but people would certainly have been going off to the east because it's Sweden, so Swedish Vikings went to Russia, traditionally, and possibly died somewhere around the Dnipr or somewhere like that. Um, But this is a partial uh, inscription and a lot of it is lost. So it's dated to the 1000s. I could say something about dating runestones later, but that's a bit of a tangent. You know?
0: Sounds like a good pundit We're archaeologists, we love dating things Oh, okay,
2: right, we'll go into, <laughs> we'll go into the dating of runestones then
0: Okay, brilliant
2: So, it's really difficult to date runestones on the fact that they're just made of stone so you can't radiocarbon date them very easily So there's a couple of methods that we can use If they use paint on the runestone and that has managed to survive things like red ochre we can we can date that quite quite easily i mean it's only a 400 year window the viking period anyway so that dating method isn't going to be the most accurate Mm -hmm. the other way that we can date them is the artwork which is quite interesting so scandinavian and viking artwork developed and changed through periods like modern art has done over from about 700 a.d to about 1200 a.d and it goes through phases. So we have some earlier ones like Yelling, which is the style used down in Denmark and is very, very related to Harold Bluetooth. But then later on, we get things like Erne's style. So the closest we have for the art in Uppland is usually Erne's style, but these are a bit later than these runestones. So the reason we know that these are from 1000 CE is is because of uh, the language itself we can track changes in the written language of the nordic languages over time by looking at how words change sounds shift and by looking at almost like a geological clock we can sort of tell when a piece of a scandinavian language is from that's cool yeah I, I i find that part really fascinating that's what i did my whole year abroad studying
0: Oh, that's cool. Did you do your yeah. year abroad in Sweden?
2: I did my year abroad in Uppsala, which is in the Uppland region. So it's okay. really close to Birka, so that's why I was able to study runes there. Oh,
1: that's yeah.
2: really cool. Mm. And also in Birka, uh, we have rune, rune carvings on bone. So we have an inscription which was Vas Oak. Ok which means just was and. A, a lot of the words get scribbled out and stuff over time on bone. Not very durable. And then another one which, Thora is Hav'er nistilund, which Thora is scorned. And then because. We don't know why Thora was scorned. <laughs> I kind of want to know. <laughs> and I, I want to know why someone has written it on a cow bone and just left it in a grave.
1: Oh. That's a good thing
2: but um it yeah it's very common to find um inscriptions on bones because uh cow sacrifice was very common we think in Scandinavia um because when uh muslim traders especially in the ukraine met scandinavians uh they observed the practice of sacrificing cattle to gods like thor and odin when they had successful trading trips yeah okay uh yeah, just read anything by Ibn Fadlan, if you want to know more about that. Also, relating to it being a Handelsplatz, sort of a trade port. We have another good one, which I wasn't able to translate. A lot of runes aren't translated. Mm-hmm. Um, I went through the dictionary, I was looking at all of the words, and I was like, I can't find the words here. Because, yeah, damage and things like that make it almost unreadable sometimes. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's an amulet made on silver. And silver was a very common trade good coming from the Middle East, especially in eastern Sweden where this is situated. So uh, I could I can read out the Norse, but I can't give you a translation for it, which is fat ik uknona, uk, ar, and then just letters RF Hitiker Thick. So if someone wants to do <laughs> what I study. Figure, figure out, out the that. mysteries of this amulet, you're more than welcome to. I want to know.
1: <laughs> someone could to dedicate their life to this for us? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that please. Would be please. Have you got any ideas, Alex, what you think it might be? Considering um, like, what it is and where it's come from.
2: Well, I managed to get the first line kind of thinking that it was that I and Nona, and then I have no idea what the word synonk means. <laughs> no. um, but and then the rest of it I could sort of translate as something to do with taking something from somewhere else to here. But that is wild speculation. Please do but not think that's possible.
1: It's maybe to do with the trade that's going on
2: here. Yeah, it's a grave good. <laughs> um, so it's quite important for that reason. But, as I said um, before, we don't have any written records from the time of Birka and all of the other contemporaneous sites like Kamla Uppsala, which was much more closer to where I'm studying, um, in the Vendel period, which is when Birke was founded, they're semi-mythological. So there's a lot of people who are descended from gods and doing stuff that is a bit, oh, um, that's not possible for a human to do. True. I mean, even in the area where Birke is founded, there's a legend about it in Heimskringla, which is basically this goddess was challenged by a king. Well, not so much challenged, he said to this goddess, can I sleep with you for one night and you can have as much land as you want, as far as you can plow it. So she was like, well, this guy's a creepy asshole. So I'm gonna go get four giant oxen that are also my sons from a giant I slept with and plow as much of this land I can in one evening. So she supposedly plowed so much land out and picked it all up, and moved it all the way across Sweden, dumped it in the ocean, and created the island of Sherland, which is the island that Copenhagen is on.
1: What a power move, I love this woman. Really? Yeah,
2: no, uh, she's named Gefjorn, if you ever want to look her up. But yeah, yeah
1: we'll worshipping her, I think. Yeah. I think she has
2: a huge statue in Copenhagen, go visit Copenhagen.
1: <laughs> you do keep but, telling me to go to Copenhagen anyway,
2: so... Go to Copenhagen. But this is this is the explanation as to why this region is so lakey and all of the inlets look like the inlets and um peninsulas they have down in Denmark. And yeah. It's also right next to Stockholm. So um you can get two Scandinavian capitals down in one if you do this little trip.
1: Yeah. Sounds ideal. Alex is just being paid by like the Scandinavian <laughs> toys industry, I think. <laughs>
2: I would gladly be paid by the Scandinavian <laughs> tourist industry. Do you know how much money it would make from that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is a shout out
1: for them to give him a job there, I guess.
0: I think Once this is to we're gonna shout out the Scandinavian tourism company in this one. Last yeah. last, last time it was Robert Pattinson. Now it's the Scandinavian tourism industry. Please hire Alex. Thank you. You can
1: play him. And yeah. also Robert Pattinson, I hope you're doing alright. <laughs> I'm not gonna, I'm not
2: gonna do that tangent. <laughs> not, we're not allowed to do tangents, clearly.
1: Last week, the episode became more about Robert Pattinson, I think, than it did about archaeology. Oh yes.
2: <laughs> I feel like I just went on the Odyssey version of Explaining Runes right now.
0: It was good. It was good. You actually had content. We mo- like, last week we mostly had just weird conversations, so... I'm sober this week. So a positive.
2: I am the opposite.
1: <laughs> Alex did what I did. Really? Hey, I have
2: I have notes and things to compare to right now. I had notes
1: last week. You did, to be fair, you did. Yeah. Yeah. Not quite as good as yours, but
2: but um yeah, like uh so runes, please study them. Uh we need more experts in the field. And also you'll have a fun time.
0: Runes? Are there many runes experts? I can't say they've ever
2: um, I met one runology expert in my time, uh, he was giving a talk in Edinburgh which sort of gave my inspiration for all of this. Hmm. But most people who study Scandinavian and are experts in either Scandinavian archaeology or Scandinavian history, they're more interested in mythology or stuff that's written down. And I'm, well, runes are written down But they're written down in a different way So, yeah Yeah, no, but um Runes runes are mentioned all the time In Scandinavian mythology um, That and Attila the Hun Makes a very, very weird appearance In one of them uh, As a Greenlandic farmer Just, yeah Just, just read some mythology If you want to see fandom That the Vikings created
0: <laughs> Oh my god I think I'm being convinced to just start doing Scandinavian archaeology. It sounds brilliant. You're gonna just drop out now, Nikki. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You'll just just see me in a few years, just like vibing in Norway or something, having a great time. I like that Um, life for you. Yeah, be fun.
2: I'm I'm always going to remember the line that was said earlier, we're archaeologists, we love dating.
1: the irony of that sentence.
0: I know. People, quite frankly.
2: So shall we get into Birka itself?
0: Yes. So basically what I have been researching is sort of the sciencey side of the burials and how they did the scientific analysis. There's a really interesting study about how they like did the scientific analysis of the diet of the people in the burials so I might get this wrong because I'm not an expert in science but basically they were looking at the carbon 13 the nitrogen 15 and the sulfur 34 in the bones and the burials so um, basically those can tell you the protein intake of what they were eating so whether it was like marine or terrestrial and the sulfur can tell you sort of like where the food originates from so kind of the same thing but also sort of like regional as well so um basically they didn't have an homogeneous diet it's weird burials with weapons seem to have a higher marine isotope level in their diet so that might be because they're like warriors they're travelers they are near the sea more so they eat more fish that seemed yeah, to be but- what they were saying like it was just interesting because there was significant differences in things such as people buried with weapons versus people without, but there wasn't any significant difference in the levels between like sexes or like um, like the actual different sites of burials. There were a few homogenous groups, so there were a few groups with very similar levels of these isotopes within them. Um, women in burials incorporating artifacts that indicate trade activities had very similar um, isotope levels and it seemed to indicate like a commonplace of origin or like habitat so maybe these were women... like a
1: canteen kind of thing at work <laughs> so, maybe that's what i'm imagining
0: yeah it seems to indicate that they were all sort of traders and they might have come from the same place and then moved there it's also They had like the whole thing with the burials with weapons having more like a marine diet is similar to burials of people with Viking descent from Orkney. So it seems to be like a similar diet situation in both places. So it seems to be just generally that warriors are eating more fish.
1: I think that makes sense though they're traveling, right? People tend to like cling the coast. Yeah. I don't so, know. It's quite a good resource theology. So. Yeah,
0: I guess. Also, this is not surprising. I don't really know why they put this in the paper if it's quite an obvious thing, but uh, in an Anglo-Saxon burial it's the complete opposite. So, yeah. um, it's sort of like people with um, like richer status will be having a higher um, terrestrial diet than marine. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious though, because it's a complete different situation. But yeah. it's interesting think... to see like the, the differences, because they clearly have different cultural oh. concepts of what is a high-status food.
2: I think this is also because um, in Norway and Sweden, farmland was not very common, uh, mm. not very um, expansive. so most more people were fishermen to get hold of their diet and also sweden has more lakes and islands than any other country in the world yeah so there's a a lot of people lake fishing around there as well not just off the coasts
1: okay i feel like that solves the mystery yeah the answer was sweden is mostly water
0: yeah no i think it was more just the fact that it was like why aren't the normal people not eating as much yeah that's Mm. But then I suppose like they're sedentary, so maybe they are are farming. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, it's probably. But it's also just like are burials with weapons warriors. That's the other question. You can't just say that they are. We can get
1: to later when we talk about the warrior woman. Exactly. How much does that upset
0: everybody? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, do you want to talk about that now? I think that's a pretty good segue into the warrior woman. Do you want to talk about her and what she's buried with? Yeah, so um, basically um, the individual in grave BJ581 was recently, um, analysis has shown that they are a female and they have very traditionally been interpreted as a Viking warrior due to the grave goods in the burial. The grave was originally excavated in 1878 and it's has long been seen as a male just due due to the grave goods. Um, It's one of only two burials from the entire island with a full complement of weaponry as grave goods, so it was seen as a particularly high status burial, but um, more recently uh, scientific analysis uh, so it was mitochondrial DNA and also some osteological evaluation assessed the individual to be female.
1: Yeah because for a long time they were like this is a really good example of a viking warrior He's a man he has got all these weapons and then they did all the analysis and they were like oh it's a woman it absolutely cannot be a warrior. Yeah
0: exactly. Yeah they, they, really, they really changed their mind as soon as they thought it was a female.
1: Which is confusing because I was like reading some stuff about like Viking afterlife and stuff like that, and there's like a special afterlife um, for warriors. There's two. There's Valhalla, and then there's another one that I can't pronounce. It's
2: Folkvanger.
1: That's it. That Which was... is
2: ruled by the goddess Freya. Who
1: yeah, who's a goddess a of war. Ooh. So surely, like, it's not too out there for a woman to be a warrior. There, exactly. Like, religion has a goddess of war. sorry to
2: take this on a tangent but also the warrior women who presided over battle who were sworn to odin and freya the valkyries they were traditionally women and also fierce fighters and in all of the sagas and all that we know about viking religion a lot of valkyries were just regular women who sort of went I don't want to marry this dude, dad. I'm going to go <laughs> swear myself to Odin and be a mighty warrior and do what I want to do. A, a good example of this is Svava, who appears in the Poetic Edda. Yeah. So
1: like, I don't know. I don't understand why everyone was like, oh, it can't be a warrior. Yeah.
2: Because
1: the mythology is for
0: it. I mean, it's it's quite clearly just modern perceptions of gender roles that is. Yeah. Which we talked
1: about last week, so I think that that might actually just be a running theme.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, next week, our um, our next episode is on Cabinets of Curiosities and Antiquarians. So that's going to be another running theme, because it's definitely going to be in that too. Oh, big
2: time. Oh, also, another thing. It is very much explicitly stated in the Poetic Edda and the Prose Edda. The, the only two real books that we have about Viking religion that the female Viking gods were not less powerful than the male ones, and were just as equal in worship and power.
1: Brilliant. So did the Vikings have, like, gender equality?
2: They, okay, they didn't have gender equality. Because they still There was definitely, like, yeah.
1: They kept a lot of women as slaves as well, didn't they?
2: Yeah, there were definitely real <laughs> problems with gender equality in Viking civilization. But, I mean, there were a lot of cases where women were treated a lot better in Viking society than other societies of the time
1: and possibly in even quite recent history.
2: <laughs> well divorce was quite easy in viking uh, society you basically like divorce was very common especially in the sagas like people just had to sort of go out into town and say this guy was a bit of a knob <laughs> and then divorce
1: <laughs> yeah what did they do after they got divorced was there like a punishment for them no, like usually
2: that. people just got remarried and met oh. other people. Yeah.
1: So it was just like get out. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. There was a there was a, another case where someone was like, "I'm divorcing this guy because he has bad breath." Fair <laughs> enough.
0: That's yeah, that is fair enough. So we're just going to talk a bit more about the science. Um, basically, there is some a scientific analysis that kind of shows maybe where the individual is from. So apparently. They have a genetic affinity to individuals from the British Isles uh, Denmark and wider Scandinavia and also to a lesser extent um, the Eastern Baltic Europe region and um, strontium isotope analysis suggests that they had like sort of that like, they moved around in their early years and also that they're probably not local and that they moved to the area later in life which is quite interesting
2: I mean, on the topic of uh, genetic admixture in Scandinavia, um, a lot of people from the British, Isles, specifically Celtic people, were taken as slaves by the Vikings and brought over to Scandinavia, especially in Iceland. There were so many Celtic women taken from Scotland and Ireland to Iceland that about 50% of the genome of Icelanders is actually of Celtic origin, which is... Just a little interesting fact, I and mean, we think it was mostly women, because it was basically just men who wanted to settle Iceland, and none of the women wanted to come along with them. So, uh, that's, uh, troubling.
1: <laughs> <laughs> if they had, like, this is just a, it's just a question, if they had, like, a child with their slave, would the child be a Viking, or would it be kept as a slave? What's the situation there?
2: So it depends on the society that you're in. So sometimes the child would be, uh, would be freed. Uh, this was more common in Scandinavia because the child would inherit the social status of the father. Yeah. But in places like Ireland, where there was a lot more mixture going on, uh, slavery tended to sometimes follow the mother's line. And then you get people like the um, Gallagher Heel, who are mixed Scandinavian-Irish people, who are looked down a bit on in Irish society. And also the moving around would easily be explained by the fact that slave trading in um, Scandinavia, especially in this time period, did not happen in simple steps uh, from point A to point B, but people would often be traded in different places over and over in more of a long chain. And also this woman having Eastern European blood. It's quite common in Sweden specifically, because in the British mindset, we tend to think of Vikings all coming over to the British Isles and invading. But that was basically just Norwegians and Danes, with the the exception of a few Swedes. Whereas the Swedes tended to go east into Russia and sort of take, they, they took over large amounts of that land founding a kingdom that we now call the Kievan Rus, which was essentially the first kingdom of Russia. And is the forerunner to the modern Russian state, you know, given a few dynasty changes and reworkings in the rulership. So that's where the modern Russian state tends to trace its history back to, is a load of Scandinavians going to the east to trade with Byzantines and the uh, Middle Eastern Islamic states and they used Kiev on the major rivers that go up through Eastern Europe as the sort of middle point for that.
0: So really, the female Viking warrior could be from anywhere.
2: I I will imagine her as a Valkyrie charging into battle, telling her parents to piss off because she doesn't want to marry the man that she chose for them.
1: She wants to kill people instead.
2: Yeah.
0: That is a lovely image. I think that's a good image to end on. Yep. <laughs> okay well thank you everyone for listening and um, thank you to our special guest alex for telling us all about runes and um, i hope lots of people now go into runic language and i also hope that the scandinavian tourism board Pay pays money. alex all his money
2: <laughs> in in fermented herring obviously in,
1: yes of course, yeah. just buckets of the stuff
2: Oh, yeah, no, slather it all over me.
1: He just wants like a bathtub
2: full of it. <laughs> Bjorn, bring me the buckets of herring. Ja, min hair. <laughs>
1: okay. Yeah, that's that's the perfect imagery to end this well.
0: That's brilliant. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so see you next time for episode C, which is going to be on Cabinets of Curiosity. See you.
2: Yeah. Idor.